Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Annie Goodman and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chip spots. Monday, October 7th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am your co-host, Matthew Zachary, and I am a proud 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And I'm your co-host, Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. On tonight's show, we'll be disrupting and debunking nonprofits. It's time to think differently about causes. Join us as we welcome VIPs Jacob Harold with GuideStar, Ken Berger with Charity Navigator, and Art Taylor with CEO BBB Wise Giving Alliance. And Survivor Spotlight and Young Adult Brain Tumor Survivor and Healthcare Blogger, Katherine Blotner. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Chief Everything Else Officer at Stupid Cancer, and I'll be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex, so send me your questions and feedback anytime with the hashtag SCRadio. Good evening. What up? How's it going? It's going good, except for the monsoon slash icky weather outside. It's tornado week. I know it is. There was a tornado warning in Brooklyn today. Yes, as I was driving five, through it. Five boroughs. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Anyway. I'd like to see it carve its way up West Broadway, somehow <laughs> navigating through the buildings. Yes. This evil. micro micro tornado. That's horrible. As our power it, it, gets it, would, cut. it wouldn't be a, a tremendous tornado. It would be a... Uh, Sharknado. It'd kind of be like a tourist <laughs> trying to navigate New York City. That's exactly what it would be like. <laughs> yes. I really, really think you're onto something. Making wrong turns. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, riding bicycles against traffic. Mm-hmm. Without a helmet. Yes. It, well, it would be a tornado on a city bike. Uh, what? Which is our new bike share <laughs> program here, <laughs> if you don't know and are not a New Yorker. The, the anyway. city bikes, yes. Anyway. Um, well, we, we got a lot accomplished last week. The last, past couple of <laughs> seven days or so have been a little hectic. OMG East, a new corporate blog. Uh, launching the uh, 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit website and Players Club. Um, I went to a conference this weekend in New Jersey for uh, brain cancer survivors. It was very very, uh, very humbling to re- sort of return to my roots, meet a lot of people who are um, I am are unfortunately not as uh, uh, well off as I am in, the, in the, um, the survivorship component of it. I'm very lucky to, to have come out uh, as unscathed uh, Kenny can make a joke here, <laughs> as I actually am. It's up for debate. Yes, it is up for debate. Yes, everything is optional right now. But uh, the big news today, Kenny? Uh, we launched a major crowdfunding initiative. Called? Instapeer. And what is Instapeer? It is uh, the next generation's 
one-to-one peer connection via mobile. That is correct. Kind of like Tinder. Yeah, like Grinder for cancer. Yeah. Except not Grinder for cancer. Yes. I was trying to be nice and use Tinder as the example <laughs> because Grinder is a little more risque. Yes. Well, we are launching a uh, a Nash international crowdfunding campaign to raise fifty thousand dollars over the next forty five days to help seed the app to uh, alpha stage. And uh, we're turning to our crowd. We don't typically fundraise or do asks, but we're doing this now because it's incredibly important. This is an app that I have been uh, wishing I could help bring to market for over two years now. And now that I have an amazing staff and bandwidth, I can actually do it. Uh, with Kenny here also at my side, uh, spearheading it socially. Uh, Instapeer, as it sounds like it's spelled, I-N-S-T-A-P-E-E-R, instapeer.org. Uh, we have a, an amazing video that articulates exactly what it is, why it's necessary. And I can't imagine anyone having gone through cancer not wishing they had an app like this, yeah. helping them to find somebody like them to connect with. It would be pretty cool if yeah. I had it a year and a half ago. We've been someone, using... Sorry. It's okay. I just have someone to text with, have it be so uh, quick. Right. Instant, hence, Insta. Yeah, it's but, not latent peer. Yeah, but it still would be, uh, it would have been cool to be able to connect with someone, you know, that quickly. Right. Especially when you're diagnosed with cancer, all your friends want to connect you with grandma, and right. you're like, get grandma away from me. But, <laughs> you know. We can make automated response peer. Yeah. And it'll be Matt's auto response with a lot of. The clam eating salt? Yes. You like my. You know what? That tells me that people read my out of office. That claim is not eating salt, by the way. Fact check. I know it isn't, but <laughs> but that's what the name of the video was. The name of the video, and I'm sticking to it. That's what it is, and I don't care. I know. Facts be damned. If Shep Smith can have those crazy televisions, I want to say what I want. Those are really crazy televisions. They, if you haven't seen it, check yeah. out Shepard Smith's Twitter feed. Yes. 55 inch touchscreen. Yeah. What? It's the equivalent of like an iPad for. Uh, Godzilla. Roughly. In front of someone's face that's sitting two inches away. Yep, pretty accurate. Annie, what's going on with the SD Lauder? That was an amazing video. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So we should post it to the Stupid Cancer Facebook feed so everybody can see it. So in August, I uh, was casted to be in a public service announcement for the SA Lauder's SA Lauder Company's uh, campaign for uh, breast cancer awareness. Every year they do a big initiative where all the money goes to the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. Um, it was pretty cool. It was me and two other survivors, another young adult survivor. She was 25 when she was diagnosed. I was 30. And then a, um older woman who was in her 50s when she was diagnosed. And they just followed us around for an entire day, kind of like a day in the life type documentary style shoot and it uh, came to fruition to this amazing two minute little mini movie of each of us and our lives and all of us live in New York and uh, it's really cool and they you know they flew my family in because my uh, some of my family lives not outside New York so they flew them in and they got this amazing surprise on camera and captured it and it's in the video and it's it was awesome. It was one of the best days of my life. So the first scene in the video is you waking up out of bed. And it's practically true because they got to my apartment at 6 in the morning. Oh, dear. And one of the crew members buzzed my apartment at 4.50 a.m. because their call time was 5. And I was like, oh, you you deprived me of 30 minutes of sleep. So I was joking. and like, okay, we want to film you uh, getting out of bed. I was like, well, you don't want to worry about me like making any funny faces, because I will literally put my head down and be half asleep. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was re- like 6 a.m., and I was so nervous that all the noise, everything, like, evicted from my building. But, um, yeah, I'm in the opening scene, like, sans makeup and PJs in my bed in my apartment. And, um, you know, I, you see me with my doctor. Uh, I go to doc- my medical oncologist is Ruth Orat at NYU, and they show her and my family and my nieces, who are now internet famous. And yes, they are. Uh, yeah, it has almost 60,000 views on YouTube so far, so it's been pretty cool. And we're only a weekend. And I got to meet Elizabeth Hurley last week. And is she as interesting looking in person as she is everywhere else she is? She is absolutely beautiful. 
And one thing I will say about her, I have, you know, met celebrities over the years. She's living in New York. They're everywhere. Right. And um, she is someone who is stunningly beautiful in person, and she looks real. She doesn't look All like celebrity fake and everything. No, she just looks like a remarkably beautiful woman who she's like 48 years old, and she's letting 48? her... 48? 48. Wow, okay. But she's not, you know... Plastic. She's very natural looking. She looks amazing, and uh, she was very sweet. And uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. So it's been a really cool experience, and I'm very proud to be a part of the project. Uh, BCRF raises a lot of money. SA Lauder companies raise a ton of money for um, breast cancer. So they, uh, you know, they do a very good job. So thank you for asking. And uh, we can't uh, end the uh, opening chit-chat without mentioning we had our, uh, I would say, our most viral post in the history of stupid cancer. And it was easily three to four times more than... Besides you and suspenders. Besides me and suspenders. Oh, God, remember that campaign? Yeah. Anyway. uh, There's a young adult colon cancer survivor named uh, Sonia Darrell. And I met her in a, a group here on Facebook through some friends of mine who are... Uh, I, I will be speaking at the Colon Cancer Alliance Conference in Miami this coming weekend. And I was just getting to know some of the folks who were going to be there because I'm hosting a session on social media, young adults and whatnot. And that Sonia uh, did like an, an intense hair and makeup on her last day of chemo to look really pretty. And she held up a sign that said, Today's my last day of chemo. I'm a survivor. And the post went like insanely viral on some other George Takei style Facebook page, and it was nothing but haters. Like it was just haters claiming she's fake, and she's she, no one has hair in, with cancer. It was terrible. So she was like emotionally. It was. It was. It was. It was. I feel really bad that she was under such ridiculous social media harassment. So I challenged, and I said, if we post it on our wall, which is facebook.com slash stupidcancer, I guarantee you there will be nearly, not nearly as many haters, and you will be embraced and loved. Anyway, one day later, 14.8 million people have seen this post. It has been, uh, I will give you the live stats now, it has been liked 590,000 times. It has been shared 6,100 times. It has um, 7,038 uh, uh, comments. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. And yeah. very few haters. Very few haters. Well, there's haters always everywhere. Gonna, well, I mean, you get that large of number, you, there's no doubt you're going to run into some. But I am really thrilled to be able to have had uh, give her a voice and confidence. And I said to her, basically, would you rather no one know your story or would you rather have inspired tens of thousands and gotten three morons who you can ignore. And it sort of it made sense. Like she was able to look past the point oh 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 one percent of people who are jerks and realize that this post really impacted hundreds of thousands of people. So anyway, kudos to that. Let's get to our uh, our first guest who I'm very, very, very excited uh, to have on the show tonight. It's been a long time coming. Okay, here we go. Catherine Blotner is a young adult survivor of grade 2 astrocytoma, which is a form of brain cancer, as well as a fierce patient advocate who blogs and tweets with the handle at cblotner underscore. She uses her experience to provide support and share resources with other young adults who have been affected by brain tumors and other cancers. Welcome, Catherine. Catherine. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's... Like I said, long time coming, and I mentioned at the top of the show I was at a brain tumor conference this weekend in New Jersey, and I told everybody to listen to the show tonight because we're featuring a young adult brain tumor survivor. And uh, I oh could, yeah, good timing. Yes, exactly good timing, and you're welcome. I'm, I'm kidding. She can get it. <laughs> tweet tweet. All right, so let let, let <laughs> all right, so let's let's start as we typically do with all of our folks in the spotlight. Tell us your life story before, how did you get diagnosed, and the fabulous uh, course correction your life made uh, navigating through this. 
Okay, so I was a typical teenager, you know, um, super active with sports and uh, really social and whatnot. And um, in 2007, I started presenting with symptoms of tingling and numbness. So that became really difficult to manage. Um, I was a really big tennis player, and it would start to um, interrupt my uh, practices and even class and everything. So those were um, typical neurological symptoms, tingling and numbness, but they were misdiagnosed for months um, before my brain tumor was even discovered. And the symptoms were eventually diagnosed as seizures, but prior to that, um, I was going to cardiologists and I was told that I had diabetes and MS and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so when an MRI was finally ordered, um, I was diagnosed with a generalized b- uh, benign glioma. And there are more than 120 different types of brain tumors, and brain tumors are typically diagnosed um, by grades, and so which is basically the same thing as stages. But grades one and two are low grade, meaning that they grow slowly, and grades three and four are considered high grade or more aggressive. Um, so at the time, my tumor was um, it was diagnosed as low grade. So uh, my doctors decided just to watch and wait um, rather than take risky action on treating um, a then 13 year old because I was in seventh grade at the time. Um, so I had MRIs for every three months and then six and eventually graduated to annual scans um, for almost five years before my tumor really grew, um, which was towards the end of 2012. So um, after the detection of pretty significant enhancement um, in 2012, I had my craniotomy, which is uh, brain surgery, on the first day of my senior year of high school, which is pretty atypical, and that was just over a year ago. Uh, but if you fast forward to one year later, um, as of a month ago, I'm officially uh, one year stable with no evidence of recurrence. Awesome. That is lovely news. Yes, indeed. And you're a college student? I am, yeah. I'm a freshman college student. And where do you go to school and live, and what are you majoring in, and tell us <laughs> the whole story. So. I am from um, Michigan, but I'm currently a freshman undergrad at Arizona State University in their Honors College. And for now, my major is um, elementary and special education, but I definitely want to work a way to get um, some sort of a double major or minor um, within healthcare, the nonprofit industry, something like that. So I'm still trying to figure that second part out. I see you escaped the cold. Yes. You went uh, as far warm as you could possibly get. Yes, that was definitely a big factor in coming here. Um, but it's also nice because um, the big factor in actually choosing um, the state of Arizona was that um, the, the baronic pressure pretty much stays the same all year. It's warm all year. It's not going to be 20 one day and then 80 the next day, which Michigan has had happen before. Um, and so with those big changes, I'd usually get really bad migraines. Um, and here my headaches have been much better since moving here. So that was definitely a good call. So you're uh, you're kind of it's interesting that uh, you were diagnosed so young. When I met you, I had no idea you were that young because you're so mature, and that kind of speaks to how <laughs> rapidly aged people get at an <laughs> early age. Uh, I'm 107, by the way. Um, but, he looks uh, every day. Yeah. Too. <laughs> Can you talk about the uh, that emotional growth you were kind of forced to have, and if that impacted your relationships with friends of the same age? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you spend most of your uh, adolescence in hospitals, so middle school, high school, um, typically those are times where you'd be going out on the weekends with friends and socializing and doing all sorts of uh, typical crazy teenage rebellious stuff. Um, I was in the hospitals um, in Michigan, traveling out of state for doctors, um, researching my condition. And so um, when you spend so much time in the hospital, really the hospital becomes your home rather than your home itself. Um, and with that comes a different perspective from the rest of your peers. So um, I I think I definitely take things more seriously in terms of, um, like, life or death type situations or um, just the trivial matters um, of life sometimes. And so I think when patients um, or young adult um, cancer survivors spend so much time um, isolated from their peers in that social sense. It definitely takes relearning um, to integrate back into school settings, social settings, that kind of thing. Are you still there? Yeah. 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 Sorry about that. So I'm all right. So let's talk about social media because I met you at a social media conference with a bunch of other yeah. epic social media ising people who are on the interwebs. Uh, chiming in on stuff. 
your WordPress is called Plated Plated Life. Uh, wh- where does that come from? Okay, so technically speaking, I have uh, four titanium plates in my head and eight screws. So I thought that, um, I don't know, that phrasing, it was both, um, it was a little bit, it was funny because it was true, um, but at the same time, there is almost um, a sense of like a barrier between um, maybe typical other college students and myself. So um, there's a little, there's something that sets us apart um, in a way, just with my medical experiences and um, just, you know, just sort of how I've grown um, both um, emotionally, but just in terms of life experience in my peers. And so um, with where I spent a lot of time uh, in the hospitals or thinking about, you know, uh, okay, I'm filling out this advanced directive, I'm going to go sign my life away, that kind of thing. Um, most of my friends haven't really um, experienced that. And so the name in itself, um, I don't know, it just sort of stuck with me. I liked it. It just sounded good to me. It's good. So you said you technically have plates in your head. Does that mean you actually have plates in your I head? I do. Okay. Just confirm oh, it. Yeah. Fancy. So you set off nail detectors. They, they don't. Is the thing oh. surgical titanium does not. But I was definitely worried about that the first time traveling back. Uh, my yeah. surgery was at University of California, San Francisco. Very cool. So you started. So you participate in BTSM, which is the Brain Tumor Social Media Chat uh, on Twitter. I know that there is BCSM, which is the Breast Cancer Social Media, which was started by um, some breast cancer survivors. So is that how you've met a lot of and interacted with a lot of other people? Have you met people your age, in your situation? Yeah, actually. Um, so the BTSM, the Brain Tumor Social Media Chat, um, spawned from the BCSM chat when I met Jody, Alicia, and Dr. Ty, who moderate their chat um, the same time when I met Matt. And um, as I got to know them a little bit and was talking to them more, I realized that there is almost no online presence for um, for a support group among the brain tumor community um, and almost no online presence at the same time. Um, I think part of that could be because um, there are many different cognitive impacts of brain tumors and um, their treatment that vary a little bit differently from um, other types of treatments, so they might not technically have the, um, the voice or the cognitive skills to get on a computer and do this type of thing. Um, so I started the chat after meeting them in March. I started it um, this past May, and it was originally um, every Sunday night, but now it's the first Sunday of the month. So last night was the chat for the month of October. Um, and we had Liz, known as um, the Liz Army, under Twitter. Yep. or um, we love her. Through her blog. Mm-hmm. And so, so we've grown close over our little uh, – brain tumor social media chat bonding, uh, but she designed the logo. She's really into graphic design, so it was a pretty sweet logo. Um, and through our chat, um, connected with people um, from, you know, like across the country. Sometimes a couple of people from England will chime in, like, the following day when it's not the middle of the night for them. Um, and there are actually several different doctors who will uh, tune in each week and help us out. One in particular, his first name is Matt, and he goes by uh, the subatomic doc. He's a uh, doc. He's a radiation oncologist, um, but we've had a lot of success in the short period of time, I'd like to say. Um, the National Brain Tumor Society hosted a chat, and they talked about their research initiatives and findings from different Avastin trials, um, and also had um, a neurosurgeon out of Indiana University, Dr. Um, Aaron Cohen-Gadal, present. Um, and so for I think for something that's run by um, you know, like a first-year college student, I think it's been going pretty well. <laughs> Um, we have one overarching theme throughout the hour, and then three different um, topics will be posed every 20 minutes. And it's, it's the same thing as the breast cancer social media uh, chat. It's just geared towards the brain tumor community. So I owe a big thanks to BCSM community for really kickstarting our initiative. So Jody Shoger is uh, was on the show just at, either last week or two weeks ago, and, and I think it was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, yeah. You know who, and I didn't realize that 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 meeting was what spawned uh, your hashtag Apalooza. Um, how many people are on the first one, and how, what kind of traction have you gotten now in terms of numbers of people? I've definitely noticed. Yeah. So typically, if it's when we were going um, every every week, we had um, one month. I think it was. Um, June, possibly July. It's one of the days. Uh, blame it on the brain tumor for the short-term memory. 
um, that we had about two to three dozen people a week, um, which in my opinion, I thought that was great because there was um, the same audience coming back every week and actively participating. Um, but we do definitely had ebbs and flows from week to week, um, and it was the um, the unsteady amount of participants that sort of um, started the once a month rather than um, every week to sort of give people um, sort of not necessarily a break, but just that participants would only have to make one commitment a month rather than four. Um, and so last night our chat went really well and we discussed advocacy and um, within this month, of course, because it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so you see the word advocacy everywhere. Um, but we were starting to figure out what we can do um, within the brain to keep our community more advocacy. Um, but really, um, the way that Jody, Alicia, and Dr. Ty um, harnessed the power of the Twitter hashtag um, and were able to sort of bring the breast cancer community together on a global scale, um, that's what we want to do, um, Liz and I and everyone else um, in the chat for the brain tumor community. And it might take a little bit longer. We're just getting started. But um, I have hope that we can do it. And I think we're already off to a good start considering. Well, I agree. And it is quite phenomenal how the stage was set for something like this. And when you fill a need that no one knew could be filled, they just flock in droves to take advantage of what you're offering. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some of your young adult-specific issues like fertility and isolation. But before that, I was hoping to talk about privacy. You know, we're a generation, or you're more of the generation millennial than I am, uh, who who don't value privacy or look at privacy as as less of a of a stigma than like my parents would. You're sharing your health history, your life, every single thing so publicly. Do you have any indication to think that this might come back? as an issue when you are looking to pursue a career with employment? Mm -hmm. This is actually the topics of one of my um, English classes a couple weeks ago, and it really got me thinking. Um, the problem is, or I foresee it being a problem when I go to apply, um, if I do end up going into education, um, I could definitely see you know parents Googling their teacher, whoever's going on principals, whoever's looking to um, hire and seeing, oh, so this person had all these um, you know, health problems and is so public about their life, this would not be good for our school setting or that kind of thing. Um, and so if I do end up pursuing um, that type of an educational career, then I do definitely have concerns. However, I'm leaning towards um, teaching within hospitals with long-stay patients who um, might possibly be a part of the cancer community or some other sort of uh, chronic health condition. And so I think in that regard, I might have some more credibility for the position. Um, when it comes to privacy in general on social media, I do have to say that I definitely um, made a misstep in using my last name with my Twitter handle, um, as well as when I originally created um, a YouTube channel, which documented leading up to, during, and um, after my brain surgery. And so I took that channel down. Um, but it, there's one thing I would change about um, my advocacy within social media. It definitely would have been to um, not use my last name via Twitter. Right. Ms. Blotner. <laughs> Mm -hmm. As Matthew just added you. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was definitely. Yeah. So I have a question about being a college student. You know, you're taking on a lot of workload for classes and studying, and it's a very – going to college is overwhelming regard, without having a cancer diagnosis. So how did you deal with being a freshman, the class, the class load that you had, taking notes, studying for exams? while, you know, being a cancer survivor because, you know, memory retaining, all that's a problem for anyone who has had any type of treatment. Yeah, I would say one of the um, one of the things that I expected um, was definitely an issue with um, I I have hypersensitivity with my um, with my hearing from surgery. It was just um, part of what came with um, the area of the brain, which is my left insula, um, tucked in between your frontal and temporal lobes. And with that, um, if I'm in a big crowd of people, such as like in a dining hall, um, then I get a headache really easily or um, it's definitely a problem. So I knew um, going into college, I would definitely have to bring some earplugs with me, which um, I had to do towards the end of um, high school when I came back after surgery anyways. 
Um, but one of the best resources I found is um, using, it's called a LiveScribe pen, and it comes with um, special notebooks, and you can record um, what's being said while you're writing and then upload it to your computer. So you can go back and click on um, any particular word, and it'll play, um, it'll play back whatever was being recorded while you wrote that. And so for me, whether it's in paper conferences or lectures, labs, whatever, um, as long as it's recorded, I can go back and listen to it as many times as I have to. And that has been extremely helpful with um, math lessons and um, just situations where you would be distracted um, with me by um, having to take in multiple different things at once. My working memory um, has the biggest difficulties in surgery, which is receiving new information and manipulating those spot, uh, thoughts in real time. And so having uh, having a tool to record those and to just sort of um, reinforce information has been huge. Catherine, I was going to talk about some other issues, but we are unfortunately out of time. I want to showcase your blog on our wall. I'd love to have you back on to talk about, you know, late late effects and your your uh, your your life going forward and the impact. And count me in for a B, uh, BTSM uh, Twitter chat one of these days. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Look forward to talking to you again soon. All right, Catherine Blotner uh, tweets at. Uh, C-B-L-O-T-N-E-R-C Blotner underscore on Twitter. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. All right, let's get to the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, everybody, you can head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. You're a one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Have some meetups hanging out coming up in Irvine, California. Matthew and I will be in attendance for that one. West Chicago, Illinois. Altamont Springs, Florida. Uh, Durham, North Carolina tomorrow night. St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, right outside Seattle, Washington. All right, we mentioned it at the top of the show. Presenting Instapeer, a revolutionary mobile health app, to end isolation and connect people uh, with those who walk in their shoes. A blatant fundraising pitch because you can help Stupid Cancer raise $50,000 to bring this revolutionary app to life. Visit instapeer.org. Watch our video. Join our army of friends, fans, supporters, and backers. Save the date for OMG 2014, the 7th annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults. Next April at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. Visit, I can't speak tonight. <laughs> Visit omg2014.org to join the mailing list and the official Facebook group. I look forward to figuring out how I'm going to get there. The fall season, <laughs> the fall season is upon us, so it's time to stock up on some new threads like stupid cancer hoodies, hats, gloves, and more. Surf on over to stupidcancerstore.org for great deals on great products. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. The Stupid Cancer Show is all new, broadcasting in stunning HD. We know you can't listen to each and every live show, so sh be sure to subscribe for free anytime on iHeartRadio Talk, Apple iTunes Podcast, or right here on Blog Talk Radio. Visit stupidcancershow.org anytime to get connected, and thanks for listening. And that is your, your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. All righty. We are so lame. We are entirely losers. It's not even funny. We're just total losers. All right, I am stoked. We got some heavy hitters on the show tonight. I'm about to introduce them. We have the CEO of Charity Navigator, Ken Berger, the CEO of GuideStar, Jacob Harold, and the CEO of the BBB GivingWise Alliance, Art Taylor. Gentlemen, please, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to be here. No, this is this is a big deal. Ken and I go back a while, and and we've been dreaming of this, and it's it's so exciting to have this platform to discuss this issue specifically and especially during Pinktober, uh, which is always an interesting uh, topic of conversation amongst nonprofits that are uh, not disease specific. So um, I'd uh, I'd just like to open the floor. Have you guys introduce yourselves? I mean, I have lengthy bios because you're all incredibly over credentialed. Uh, but I just, uh, you know, put you in the spotlight. Ken, why don't we start with you? You're a returning champion here on the Stupid Cancer Show. Yes, hi. It's great It's great to be here again. And, uh, you know, also October is important because both Art and I have birthdays in October. So, you know, we're all getting older together <laughs> watching the leaves come out. But, uh, 
anyway, I, so so you know, Charity Navigator, we're we're uh, you know, uh, I guess we're going on eleven eleven-ish years old website, and our mission is to be a guide to intelligent giving, and so we rate charities of every kind. Um, we're at about seven thousand charities at this point, and uh, increasing by the day. Um, and those charities, from our research, get about 55% of where all charitable gifts go each year. Uh, so it's over $100 billion when you take out houses of worship, $100 billion, $110 billion at this point of charitable gifts. And so we rate the charities to be a way to, to help people um, uh, assess the performance of charities and also all kinds of tools and tips that we have on our website. We have every uh, U.S. registered nonprofit there, even, even if we don't rate them with uh, guides to how people can um, make uh, wise uh, giving decisions when it comes to their charitable gifts. That's it in a nutshell. Yes, and uh, Jacob, actually I was just on Guides are updating our nonprofit re report uh, because we've been going through a legal name change for almost 18 months, and the IRS finally updated their database, and now we are properly reflected on GuideStar. Um, it's been a great tool for me to use as I've learned what being a nonprofit executive is. Um, but for the uh, listeners out there... What is that exactly? What is what? <laughs> being a nonprofit executive? I just wake up in the morning, shower, and show up somewhere. That's pretty much it. There you go. Yes. It's a very, very low-level commitment. Well, I have to say that uh, you know, there are a few things I like to hear more these days than uh, nonprofit executives saying they've been updating their profile on GuideStar. So that's <laughs> a great way to start this conversation. Yes, I'm, I'm wetting your um, whistle. <laughs> but uh, GuideStar has been around for about 19 years, um, and we have about 2.2 billion pieces of data about nonprofits. Uh, and unlike uh, our colleagues at, at Cherry Navigator, we don't do ratings, but we see our offering of a variety of different kinds of data to be nicely complementary to the work that Ken and his team do, as well as Art and his team. Um, and you know, we see that the world is full of really complicated social problems, and nonprofits are a critical part of the solution. Um, but they're complex and diverse organizations, and, and we've got to figure out how to raise up the best and help organizations learn from each other and and just generally use information to make better decisions to actually make some progress on these uh, these great challenges that we're facing. Well, I appreciate that. And Art, it's it's great to connect with you here on the show. The BBB uh, Wise Giving Alliance was formed uh, by the merger of the uh, National Charities Information Bureau and the Council for the BBB Foundation. That's some pretty pretty big stuff over there for oversight, right? Yes, um, and I have to tell you, it's it's really glad to know that charity executives are bathing before they come to work. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm glad I just closed that one. Some, some of them. That's, that's big news. Yes, and um, we ought to get that get the word out about that. I think that might increase contributions <laughs> overall if we were able to let people know that. I'm glad we're innovating here on the show tonight. They're accountable, but they're clean as well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, uh, we, we also um, do our best to help donors make informed giving decisions by uh, evaluating charities, um, charities that people say they want to know something about, uh, in relation to 20 standards that we've cobbled together with the help of many in the nonprofit sector. And we like to believe that uh, charities that meet these standards are accountable to their donors, transparent, and open about their practices and the work that they do. Uh, and surveys we've done have indicated that organizations that meet these standards seem to raise between 8 to 12% more than organizations that don't. And we also have heard that charities that use our seal on their solicitation materials uh, people tell us that they're uh, significantly more likely to give to those organizations that have the seal than they are to those that, that don't. So um, we like to believe that we're having an important impact on people who, who make giving decisions. Um, I think that, um, you know, together, you know, these three organizations um, have a big impact on the giving community and also the charitable community. Because when we ask for information or when we ask them to do certain things and they do it, um, we are certainly um, changing the face of these organizations and 
and the people um, that serve them can feel a lot more comfortable about making their gifts to them. And and so that's that's really what we do, and, and we're we're happy to do it, and uh, and look forward to hearing from people who want to know more about our work. And you can find out about that, by the way, by going to our website, which is give.org. Nice and simple. I like to keep it simple. Well, yep. uh, just the, the 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 potency of the power of bringing these three massive organizations under one roof and umbrella comes from a lot of the conversations that I've had with with Ken over the years. Uh, Ken was on the show a couple of months ago, and we were talking about wasteful spending and and uh, greed and corruption and and a whole bunch of other the, the litany of, of politics in the nonprofit world. But when I saw that you were all coming together over this magic word called overhead. It, it my my you know my my spidey sense was tingling. Very excited that you're launching this initiative. Overhead Myth is the website, and it's basically here to destigmatize and debunk. And we'll start with Ken. Well, actually, and and also, if we harken back to when we last spoke, I believe that um, the uh, my doppelganger uh, Dan Pallada was also. Uh, part of that was he not? Or yes, yes, or, or he was. Sort of, yeah. And and so you know, and so I've accomplished the the uh, I've now accomplished uh, his never wanting to be on a show with me again. So it's really <laughs> an outstanding achievement for me. Right. But but actually, I think that the overhead myth. Um, I think part of the real interest, I think, in the whole question of overhead, which has certainly been something that's been discussed in the nonprofit sector for a while. Um, Dan Pallotta did a TED talk, uh, which now has over 2 million hits, and he speaks about overhead. And I think uh, from, from, from our perspective at Charity Navigator, um, it's throwing out the, you know, the baby with the bathwater. And so to have a, um, a more um, a balanced view of the question of overhead, I think, will, is, is part of uh, – what, what interested us in, in this initiative, and, uh, you know, the, the notion that, yeah, it's absolutely true, as, as Dan Pallotta would suggest, that uh, if all you're looking at is overhead or if that's the primary thing you're looking at, it's a problem, and that you could do more harm than good because you run the risk that um, other things that are more important, like the quality of your program, get, get uh, lost in the process. On the other hand, the other side of the coin is to completely suggest that it's, it doesn't matter and it shouldn't be considered, um, uh, in our opinion at least, is, is very foolhardy because we know that uh, when it comes to some of the real scoundrels and thieves, and when you have these cases where 70, 80, 90 percent of the money is going to uh, professional fundraisers and the like, um, you know, there needs to be a balance struck. And I think, I, I think that the, the letter that we've we all signed together, um, I think, speaks to that more balanced view of this question. But certainly, the, you know, the fundamental was to say it's time for us to let the, the world know that, you know, the, 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 the general sense that many people have that, it's, you know, the first thing you ask is what's the overhead uh, of this charity? If that's as far as you go, you, you could be very, very um, misinformed and, and make a very bad decision if that's all you consider. And what type of Excel? Open this one up to Jacob. What are expenses that you guys classify as overhead? Sure, they, they tend to fall into two different categories. Uh, so one are administrative costs, and these are the core costs of an organization. Um, people often refer to it as keeping the lights on, and that might be the cost of strategic planning, or training your staff, or literally the electricity bill um, for for an organization. Um, and the second category are fundraising costs, and those are the costs uh, for the expenses that you incur in order to, to raise money. Um, and building on what Ken said, I, I really like to distinguish between those two. Um, and, and to say that you know, overhead can be a filter for fraud. It can be a mechanism for us to find those few, but unfortunately very real cases of fraud or gross mismanagement in the nonprofit sector that are in the minority. It's a tiny percentage, but it is a real problem. Um, and we can use overhead to filter those folks out. But we I, have to, I, I would humbly submit that uh, it's not necessarily all that small. It is not the majority by any means, but there are some real problems, and I'm not convinced that it's 
you know, minuscule. I think there are some significant problems out there. There are some books that have come out, and there is some evidence that, you know, when it comes to these telemarketers, for example, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so it's no small thing. Um, I, so I, I would agree that, that that's right. But as you just said, you know, $100 million is a tenth of a percent of, of philanthropy um, each year. And maybe it's, you know, a couple tenths of a percent. And that is something that we absolutely have to address. But in the grand scheme of the nonprofit sector, it's still not the – it's not what the nonprofit sector is about. It is a set of fraudsters that we have to deal with. When I, and that actually um, brings me to my, a good question for Art and uh, the BBB Giving Wise um, Alliance. Uh, we were exploring this uh, hiring some folks to do fundraising for us, and there's a system for professional fundraising registration in certain states. Um, how does that play into this strategy to, to protect from fraud? Well, I think the state regulators do what they can by asking fundraisers to register with the states um, as a way of sort of keeping tabs on who's raising money for an organization, and it sort of puts boards on notice that they ought to make sure that they're vetting um, the people who are doing fundraising for them and that they should be making sure that the fundraising approaches used are uh, approved and, uh, and, and that they're not fraudulent or misleading because a lot of solicitations are, in fact, misleading. And we've noticed that um, with direct mail, for instance, um, the, the only thing that many people who receive mail will know about a charity is what they see in that solicitation. So it's really important that those solicitations be truthful and not misleading in order for people to make informed giving decisions. But if I could, I wanted to just comment on this idea that um, for some people, for some organizations, I don't believe there's a real understanding of what administrative costs are. Because, um, for instance, if you have training costs, it's not necessary. Those costs are not necessarily administrative. If they're training related to the specific program that the charity is putting on, as opposed to training people to do accounting work, then it would be program related and it would not be considered an administrative cost. If you have IT, which a lot of people like to classify as administrative, if the IT is related to the program that the charity is operating, it's not administrative its program so a lot of this overhead myth discussion should also be geared toward letting organizations understand what the difference is between some of the functions that they provide and and making sure that they're properly classifying the the expenses that they incur if they did that then we would find that there's a lot more um, that charities could do to support their operations um, than they presently do, and that a lot of the expenses that they're incurring are indeed allocable to, to program. Um, and lastly, you know, when we do uh, a look at the organizations we evaluate, we find that very few have trouble meeting our standard for uh, fundraising costs and administrative cost spending. Uh, and we think that's a good thing, but a lot more organizations fail to meet uh, one or more of our other 20 standards, in fact, 35% of the organizations we evaluate fail to meet one or more of our other standards. And so if you're only focusing, as Ken said, if you're only focusing on admin and fundraising costs, you're going to miss a whole lot, and you may end up supporting organizations that you might not otherwise if you looked a little bit deeper. So that's another reason why we have to pay attention to to this whole idea of of overusing uh, these administrative and, and fundraising ratios. And following up on that to Ken, how could charities respond to donors who tell people and they're coming back to the charities and saying they don't want their their hard-earned money to go towards paying a CEO salary or a salary of the people who work at nonprofits? Well, I think they can um, very proudly produce the uh, overhead missile letter uh, to the donors of America, and um, there's, you know, uh, the opportunity to um, let them know that um, those of us that are doing this work and that, you know, are evaluating the performance of charities do feel 
that it's really important that charities have a reasonable amount of money allocated for those salaries and for um, the costs of um, the administrative and uh, the uh, fundraising costs. There are real costs associated with that, and if you get to the point where you want to bring that down to zero, um, then you're really you are killing the organization, and it's going to have to find some other way to raise that money. And uh, so, I think um, you know it's important to have that conversation with people. When it comes to CEO salaries, uh, there are resources. I, I know that you know we do a study each year. GuideStar does a study each year. The Chronicle of Philanthropy does a study each year on CEO compensation, and all of us share the uh, view uh, and the data shows that the typical CEO of a mid to large size charity makes a six figure income and that if you want to have the talent that you need to run these organizations there is a cost associated with that and by the way it's typically not the same as the cost of a for profit so we are we are in a sense um, making a sacrifice if you will because it's, it's a charity and it's a public benefit but it is normal to make a six-figure income, and that if we try to squeeze that out, you're, you're going to potentially ruin the organization. That's a good point, Kent, because I, I think that there are lots of people who look at charities, and they believe that everyone who works in the organization is a volunteer, and that um, if somehow people are getting paid, there's something wrong with that. So I also think that this discussion around overhead is going to open up not only the overhead myth, but a lot of myths and misperceptions that people have about charities. And I think that's going to also be very beneficial for organizations and for and for people in general. Well, the website is overheadmyth.com. I just want to read the second sentence of this letter, um, <clears throat> which articulates everything we're discussing tonight. It says, the percent of charity expenses that go to administrative and fundraising costs, commonly referred to as overhead, is a poor measure of a charity's performance. So my question is, what is a good measure of a charity's performance, and how can donors ask the right questions to find that out? Open to all of you. Well, let me give a shot on this one. This is Jacob. Um, and, and to start by saying that Charities are incredibly diverse. We're talking about a million different organizations in the U.S., everything from a corner homeless shelter to Stanford University to the ACLU to the NRA. Um, and that it, the idea that we could have any one number or approach that could be used to address this immense diversity, I, I think, is um, it, it's, a, it's an idea that I think will never come up with a perfect solution. However, we can step back and say there are many different ways to judge the performance of organizations, and we can come together and have a multidimensional view. We can look and see, is an organization following uh, evidence-based practices? What's the research say works? Is an organization in a systematic way measuring the activities that it does and what comes of them? Is it following up with its um, beneficiaries in the long run and, and tracking to see if they're actually making any impact? Uh, is it systematically listening to all of its stakeholders? And that we can come up with, um, for each organization, an appropriate mix of metrics that allows us to really have a sense of, is this a high-quality organization or not? I, I would, if I could also just add to that, I, you know, I, I think that the, the second leg of, of an effort I would love for us three to have is um, what you might even call it the output myth. And, and it would be a letter to the, to the nonprofits of America. Nice. I like that. And to say, if, if we're going to pull back on overhead, I think, you know, Matthew's question of what are we going to replace it with, and if we don't have meaningful information about the performance of charities' results, as we find in the cases of most charities today where we don't find it publicly reported, meaningful information on their results, then you put donors into a real box because if they're not going to look at those traditional what we agree upon are bad me measures if that's all you look at, but you're not supplying the more valuable information, we're in a deadlock. And so the next challenge, I think, for us is to really get that kind of information because right now it's very hard for donors to get that. And I think that the efforts of all three of our organizations are to try to move in that direction from charting impact to CN 3.0 
to a variety of different things that we're trying to do to get more public reporting of meaningful results of outcomes rather than just you know counting heads or outputs. And Ken, going back to Charity Navigator 3.0, which is the third version of your measurement platform, uh, we're looking at this, and this is for all of you. The the um, this is this is not really a 180, but it's a different shift of dialogue and perception than what the general public has been told over the past couple of years. They've learned to question where their money goes. They've learned to look at impact in their own mindset. Now we're we're not really flipping it, but we're re-spinning the way we're trying to empower people who want to give effectively, correct? Sure. We want, and, and I think this gets back to something Jacob said. We want to give them a multi-dimensional or a three-dimensional view, hence you know, 3.0. We still want to consider finances. It is important. You've got to have that. And also we've got to look at questions of governance and uh, best practice. Uh, ethical practices, that's the second dimension. And then the third is this question of the, the results. So the, the notion is to say to donors, we have to try to look at the whole picture of the charity, not just one piece of it, or one, and in the case of overhead, one subset of one piece of it. We really need to look at the whole picture. And the most important piece is the results. Far more than anything is the question of, are you meeting your mission with meaningful results and really helping people and communities? And I like to think of a layer cake. And basically, we've had a layer cake in the nonprofit sector with only one layer, which has been finances. And all three of our organizations are trying to build additional layers onto that layer cake. And eventually, you get to the frosting, which is actually having results that matter. Um, and so it's not, to me, a 180, but it's, it's about building an additional layer on top of something that will continue to matter, but just isn't the, the whole story. Yeah. And I also think that for some people, while they will want to know if a charity has met its goals and if it's having impact, it's also important for them to know that the organization is trustworthy. And so even though an organization might not achieve all of its goals or have the impact that it wanted, we want to see the report. But we also want to know if the organization is trustworthy, whether they were really setting bold and audacious goals and they just fell short. Whether everybody in the organization is really working hard in a focused way to achieve an outcome, but it's just a hard outcome to achieve, and we just haven't gotten mm -hmm. there yet. I mean, if you look at most organizations, they haven't achieved the ultimate impact that they want to have. So if we were to just stop with the impact report, we might say, let's not give them any more money because they haven't accomplished all their goals. And I think that would be wrong. So if we don't know whether we can trust the organization, we won't know which one of those organizations that have not maybe achieved all their goals that we should be supporting. So I think people want to know if they can trust the organization, and that has always that always has to be, in my opinion, the center of the three-layer cake, whether we can actually trust the organization. Um, this is really turning into a sweet conversation. <laughs> we have that effect on people. At least... As I look at the, the challenge out here, it, it's always going to be about, first, can we trust them? Because in the end, it may be hard to achieve those goals, but they may be working really hard in an honest and forthright way to do it. And we certainly want to continue to support that type of organization. And speaking of a good segue, uh, what is considered nonprofit fraud, and what can nonprofits and charities do to crack down on it? Well, the place, the place that, um, you know, when, it, well, first of all, the, the question of fraud, um, it basically, you know, more often than not, what we see is, um, you know, that an organization is, is using funds typically for things other than the mission. Uh, it's sometimes referred to as private inurement where, the, you know, the leadership is benefiting from it or some, some relative or some for-profit company where it's really basically not – fulfilling its public good, it's the purpose that it was created for, and it's an engine for some other less noble purpose. And the, the, the typical place that people should be reporting if they become aware of those sorts of things are state attorney general's offices, which are ultimately, in, in, you know, in the states are, is the place where typically these sorts of things would be investigated. Oftentimes we find that it's um, 
investigative reporters, newspapers that uh, sometimes unearth these stories. Um, recently had one where it was like the 50 worst charities in America by Tampa Bay, I think it was Herald. Um, and I saw so, that. Uh, that raised a lot of eyebrows. I'm, yeah, yeah. Does anyone go to jail? Yeah. Does anyone go to jail for defrauding very consumers? Very rarely, from, <laughs> but very rarely from, from what time, we see. From time to time, but, you know, a lot of times states will settle these cases with the charity. The charity will pay a fine. Um, the, the state regulator will um, allow the charity to exist under a different leadership, and there's very little publicity about it, and it goes on. But the thing to realize is that if you're just going to rely on a state charity regulator to to catch the problems, uh, you're never you're, you're in trouble because they they have um, they don't have a lot of resources to go after bad actors, and so uh, in many cases, unless there's a whistleblower or something in, involved, the state charity regulators will not be in a position to identify these organizations as much as they try. So uh, people have to be their first line of defense against unscrupulous organizations by keeping what I call mother wits about them. And uh, if it doesn't sound right or feel right or smell right, then ask more questions and, and look, at, look out to, for others who are more engaged in, in, in looking for these kinds of problems and, and, and stay clear of these organizations. Don't feel like you have to be pressured to make an immediate gift. I mean, we put these tips out all the time to help people protect themselves against fraudulent organizations or, or poorly managed ones. And it would be helpful if people paid attention to those tips. And what are some of the tips? Okay. I know that a lot of times um, this comes out a lot after, you know, not even just cancer or diseases, but after storms. You know, so-and-so's neighbor lost all their belongings, things like that. So what are some of the tips you have for people so that they don't get, you know, gypped or, you know, blatantly taken advantage yeah. of. Yeah. The basic, the basic oh message, you know, the basic message is, you know, it, if you if you see these kind of images and they tug at your heart, which is typically where giving begins from, the passion and the feelings of the heart. Don't don't take your head out of the formula. Use use your head. Do a little research. Check into it with resources like our organizations. To, to find out if indeed it is a real organization, a valid organization. Don't just go with some compelling video that you see online or a phone call or somebody who solicits you on the street because they know when it comes to disasters, they know uh, many of these scoundrels know that that's a time that the American public's generosity will really come out and they will create websites in a second with a sound-alike name to an organization you may have heard of or the name of the disaster, whatever it might be. So just uh, take a moment and, and turn to some of the resources out there, such as our three organizations, so that you don't get ripped off. So we have, you know, all, I think, you know, as, as Art said, you know, we have tips and, and advice for, uh, for these kind of situations, but the bottom line is do a little research to avoid disaster of your own with your charitable giving. And, you know, every every dime that goes to uh, an organization or a person that doesn't deserve it is one that should have gone to one that was deserving. And my wife is, is really one of, if she heard me say this, she'd be upset. But the truth <laughs> is, if we go down the street and someone asks her for money, I'm from so-and-so organization, she always digs in her purse and, and hands him a dollar. Oh, oh no! Says, well, <laughs> honey, it's only a dollar. I know you work for the but I but I say to her, I know and I understand that. But there are many organizations that would be doing much more with that dollar. Give to them, right? <laughs> so so uh, that's and, and that's a tough that's a tough love kind of message, but yeah. it's one that I think we all have to employ. Well, Ken, you know uh, you have inspired me, actually, and, and partially Dan as well, to write a middle ground article on Huffington Post called The Anti-Nonprofit. And you had given me some staggering statistics that I, this, this post went, didn't go viral. It did very well, reactionary. Um, but 94% uh, of U.S. nonprofits generate under a million dollars a year, and almost half of U.S. nonprofits bring in less than $25,000 a year. So donors don't even have the opportunity to uh, rank and rate and view reviews of charities 
if more than half of them aren't even listed on these websites because they're not meeting the uh, the fundraising criteria? Is there anything uh, in this conversation, this amazing conversation tonight, that could be a takeaway for the people that give to the mom and pop charities uh, that don't use the telemarketers, but maybe they just don't have impact? Well, I, it, I think that the bottom line is, you know, America, as you say, is largely made up of these incredibly small organizations. And in those cases, I think that the best way for somebody to make a determination is they've got to they gotta go eyeball it themselves. It's the only way that you're going to get that information typically. And uh, the tools that you can use when you go eyeball it yourself, uh, again, I would refer you to our websites and, you know, the three pillars that I refer to, the, the, the views that – uh, multi-dimensional where you look at the finances, the governance, and the results, you know, ba some basic common sense and, and you know, having a sort of a walk-through guide like uh, we provide um, is, is a way to begin that process. So, Well, and, and the other good news is that while there are so many small organizations, uh, many of them don't have the, the wherewithal to do a heavy amount of solicitation. So they're generally getting money from people who know them well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you have to be an organization of a certain size to really do fundraising uh, on a massive scale where you would really not be able to go talk to the organization directly perhaps. So, um, you know, if an organization is raising under $25,000, um, they are probably a local organization in your community, and as Ken said, if they've somehow gotten a solicitation to you, you can go down and talk to the leaders of the organization, find out what they're doing, and if you're comfortable, you know, feel free to give them some money. But um, uh, the organizations that we generally encounter are ones that have the ability to solicit you on a broad scale and and, and um, stuff your mailbox with with reams and reams of request for donations and you're not going to be able to necessarily go to their sites to find out about them so you're going to need a third party to help you and and we're happy to do that all of our organizations are happy to help and I'll, this will be one of our last questions to the I'll open up to all of you but what do you do if you donate money and you discover fraud let's say you give money with your Christmas card and you say I gave a donation to the human fund then what can donors do? Call well, if you believe there's fraud, you should call your state attorney general's yep. office. Mm -hmm. yep. That's right. Yep. You know, and, and get them involved and um, make sure that uh, they, they're following up um, with that. And or, if, they don't, you know, if, if they don't, go to the newspaper. Right. Yeah. <laughs> newspaper. That'll embarrass them. <laughs> yep. Well, I'm glad that none but of us have been right, on the. But I, I don't want us to end with a sense that no. you know, that fraud <laughs> is omnipresent in the nonprofit sector. It's not, it is it's a not. very yeah. real problem involving many, many organizations and many, many people. But the vast majority of nonprofits are really trying to do good work in their communities um, for the people in the communities and the ecosystems they serve. That doesn't mean they're all doing a great job, um, and some of them are really doing a better job and creating far more impact.